Our scripture reading today will be from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. One occasion, while they were eating a meal together, he gave them this command. Wait for the gift my father promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not for you to know the timing of the father's purposes, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise at the beginning of the book of Acts. And by chapter 2, it's clear that this promise is made to all of us who follow Jesus. When you're baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit, you will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Often when we begin the study of a new book of the Bible, we begin with an introduction. Who wrote it? When? Who was it written for? What kind of book is it? How is it organized? Well, we'll get to all of those things, but I don't want to do that today. Instead, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the purpose of the book of Acts. What is the book of Acts all about? Why read it now as a church? Will you pray with me? Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. As we open your word, let us see you and become more like you. Amen. You can't read the book of Acts without being stirred and challenged. J.B. Phillips, the famous New Testament translator, 
It says this is because we're seeing Christianity, the real thing in action, for the first time in human history. We're seeing the church in its first youth, valiant and unspoiled, a body of men and women joined in an unconquerable fellowship never before seen on this earth. But Phillips also says that reading Acts is a disturbing experience because this is the church as it's meant to be. It's vigorous and flexible. These are the days before, he says, it became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound by over-organization. Those we read of in the book of Acts did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. David Williams, the commentator, says because of their readiness simply to believe, to obey, to give, to suffer, and if necessary, to die, the Spirit of God found that he could work in them and through them so that they turned the world upside down. Acts is the only authentic record we have of the first years of the church's history. There's a few hints about that in Paul's letters. The Jewish historian Josephus supplies a bit of background history for the same period. But if Acts had been lost, there's really nothing to take its place. Without Acts, we would know little about Paul and his letters, and those letters would be much more difficult to understand. There would be no description of baptism in water, or baptism in the Spirit. Both of those things would be mentioned elsewhere, but not described for us. We wouldn't easily understand what a church was, or what elders were. Many things referenced in the epistles would be mysteries, or lacking in context. In fact, the New Testament itself would be split pretty radically in two. There would be the Gospels, recording Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. Then there would be the letters written 20 years after Jesus' ministry to these things called churches, which had seemingly spontaneously sprung up all over the place. Where did these churches come from? Who started them? How and why? Acts tells us these things. In fact, it tells us enough to put a setting to many of the letters in the New Testament and to know something about many of the individuals who are named in those letters. In a sense, the, the Gospels themselves are pre-Christian. No one during Jesus' ministry was called a Christian. The epistles, on the other hand, were all written to people who were already Christians. Only Acts shows us how people became Christians. It tells us that Christianity spread across the Roman world and beyond as more and more and more and more people came to faith in Jesus. And without the book of Acts, we couldn't be sure of the importance of the, the four elements that coming to faith involves. Repent, believe, be baptized in water, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Let me say them again. Repent, believe, be baptized in water, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Without the book of Acts, we couldn't be sure of the importance of these four elements. And without the book of Acts, while we would have lots of letters written by Paul, we would not only find it almost impossible to put Paul and his work in any kind of chronological or geographic order or setting, we wouldn't be able to work out where he went or when, we'd also be in the dark about the strategy behind the church's expansion around the Aegean Sea, across Greece and into Italy. In fact, we couldn't be sure that there was any strategy at all. It's only when we try to imagine how little we would know of early Christianity if we didn't have this book that we begin to get an idea of just how important the book of Acts really is. But of course, Acts does far more than just fill in historical gaps for us. It's an amazing book, filled with trials and riots, persecutions, escapes, martyrdom, voyages, shipwrecks, rescues, in temples, courts, prisons, in deserts, on ships, at sea, in barracks, in theaters, and marketplaces, and in famous locations all across the ancient world, Jerusalem and Antioch, Philippi and Corinth, Ephesus, Athens and Rome. It's a great read and I'd encourage you to take time to read through it in maybe one or two sittings uh, sometime soon. It, it takes perhaps about two and a half hours to read its 28 chapters. Of course, reading it straight through can also be misleading. As if one extraordinary event follows hard on the heels of another and another and another. In fact, of course, Acts spans about 30 years from the resurrection of Jesus to Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. It can also be a rather puzzling account for modern readers. It's history, but it's not history the way that we write it today. Maybe the clearest example of this is the way the story of Acts jumps from one character to another to another. Chapters 1 to 5 are about the 12 men Jesus appointed as apostles, with chapters 3 and 4 particularly focusing on Peter and John. Then in chapters 6 to 8, the focus switches to the first deacons, principally Philip and Stephen. Chapter 9 introduces Paul, but then the author returns to Peter through chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapters 13 to 15 follow the missionary journeys of Barnabas and Paul. And then the rest of the book, chapters 16 to 28, essentially recounts Paul's further travels and his trials, imprisonments, and his journey to Rome. What are we to make of an author who doesn't seem to know who his main character is? Of course, it's always possible that he does and that none of those I've mentioned are actually the main character. But if anything, that makes Acts an even more unusual book, doesn't it? Equally puzzling for us is the ending. Have you read it? The book ends this way. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome, in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness, 
and without hindrance. After all of the action and excitement of the Book of Acts, that seems like a pretty wishy-washy kind of an ending. But even more frustrating, we don't find out what happened to Paul. From Acts chapter 20 onwards, Paul has been headed to Rome. He's been on trial before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, the Romans, the Roman governors Felix and Festus, and King Herod Agrippa. And in the end, he's appealed as a Roman citizen to be tried before the emperor in Rome. Now, after a shipwreck which gave him every chance to escape, he finally arrives in Rome only for acts to end without telling us what happened. Either the author is absolutely hopeless at telling stories, or something else entirely, something that's not obvious to us as modern readers, is actually going on. Well, we'll get into these puzzling features of Acts and many more in due course. But for today, there's one problem with Acts that we must address before we can go any further. And it's this. To what extent should we copy what we read about in the book of Acts? In his book on Acts, our dearest friend Bruce Milne says, Acts is not just about what the church did, but about what it exists to do today. Now that's how we all, I think, tend to read the book of Acts. The book invites us to compare the church today with the church in Acts. But are we right to read it that way? Clearly Acts is descriptive of how the early church acted. But is it also prescriptive, telling us how we should act as the church in our age? If it just describes what they did, then it's an interesting history book. If it prescribes what we should do, well, does that make it an instruction manual? It's not a simple question to answer. If it's an instruction manual, then all we need to do is follow it. Copy the example that we see there, right? But which example? In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas get in a fight, an argument over one of their companions, and they go their separate ways. Having worked together for years, they never work together again, as far as we know. Is that a model for us? What about the communal nature of the church in Jerusalem? In Acts chapters 2 and 4, we read that the believers shared all their possessions with one another so that there was no needy person among them. Is that a description of what they did? Or is it an instruction for us as well? Some things seem even more confusing. On one occasion, Paul is miraculously freed from prison. On another, he refuses to escape when he's given the chance. Worse still, Peter is saved by God from execution by Herod. But James is beheaded. Which of these is the example showing us what we should be expecting from God? See, Acts is not simply an instruction manual. It's not immediately obvious how to take lessons from the book of Acts for today. 
But this is the most important issue in understanding and making use of this book. Douglas Stewart says, historical precedent is a key interpretational issue for Acts. In other words, how do we make use of what happened in the past? When we read of an event in the book of Acts, does that set a precedent for all future churches to follow? The answer, I think, and Bruce, of course, chose his words very carefully, is that we can learn from all of the book of Acts, but not merely by copying what we see there. We need to learn not just from the good things, but also from the bad, such as the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. We need to learn not just from the joyful moments, but also from the painful ones, like the martyrdom of Stephen. We need to learn to distinguish between the normal and the one-off. Everyone who joins the church undergoes a conversion experience. But Paul's conversion, where he falls from his horse, blinded by the appearance of the risen Jesus, well, that surely is for him, not for everyone. Now, if a thing is repeated or confirmed elsewhere in the Bible, it may be normal. But we mustn't just assume that whatever we read in Acts is. Unless Scripture tells us that something is normal, let's not assume that it is. And most important of all, we need to learn to look at the big picture. When we read Acts, as we're going to do over the coming weeks and months, we are tending to look for specific instruction. For example, we look at a passage like the beginning of Acts chapter 6, in which seven men are chosen to take over the task of food distribution to poor widows. We look at a passage like that, and we focus on the specifics very often. We ask, what does it tell us to do when we need to appoint new leaders in the church? Well, it's possible that this passage sets a precedent for the way in which we choose leaders. But unless we look elsewhere as well, we can't be sure of that. And because we can't be sure, since Acts doesn't intend to give us a model of leadership selection at this point, we end up in fruitless discussions over details. When what we ought to do in response to the book of Acts as a whole is staring us in the face, if only we would look at the big picture. Douglas Stewart again. Acts model is in the big picture, not in the specifics. When we step back from the details and look at the book as a whole, there are some very obvious things that the author of Acts is expecting us to recognize about God's intentions for the church, whether it's the church in the first century or in the 21st. And the two inescapable messages are about the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel. The author of Acts is not much interested in biography. He doesn't give us a complete account of any of his characters. He switches between them without missing a beat. And he's not much interested in church organization. There are so many questions that we'd love to know about, like, why, in Acts chapter 15, James, the brother of Jesus, seems to have become the leader of the church in Jerusalem when Peter was in that law before? 
But Acts simply doesn't give us answers to those questions. But what the author of Acts is absolutely intent on is showing us the unstoppable outward expansion of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. The consistent picture in Acts is of believers filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly testifying to their faith wherever they end up, no matter whether they get there by accident or by instruction from the church or by scattering because of persecution or by obedience to a specific command of God. Neither threats nor violence, neither distance nor opposition, neither rejection nor injustice, nothing will stop the growth of the church as people from further and further west across the Roman Empire hear and respond to the good news about Jesus. Stuart says the forward momentum of the gospel Changing lives and communities wherever it goes, that is the norm. That's what Acts is pointing us to. And we can't be in any doubt that this is the main message of Acts because the author repeats it over and over and over again in every context that he writes about. Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Acts 5.14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Acts 6 verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And on and on and on it goes. These so-called summary statements leave us in no doubt that the seemingly random series of events that the author of the book of Acts tells us about, they are actually the key events that lead to the next stage in the spread of the good news and the growth of the church. The word of God spread. Many were added. Acts describes a movement of the Holy Spirit across the world, which continues to this day. That's the big picture. That's what we must be sure to copy in our day. And honestly, that's a lot more challenging than attempting to copy some of those little things. It's one thing to compare the way we select leaders with a passage from Acts. But it's a whole other thing to compare how we are doing in spreading the word of God and adding to our number daily those who are being saved. Acts shows us that the irresistible expansion of the gospel in the power of the Spirit is the normal condition of the church. Where it is not increasing, something is wrong. Of course, I'm not suggesting here that the details are not important. In fact, we're going to look very carefully at the events that Acts presents to us. But it's vitally important that as we do that, we don't lose the big picture. The message of, of Acts for us is surely that the risen Jesus 
is still at work through his spirit, guiding and empowering the church, guiding and empowering this church in the midst of pandemics and displacements and everything else that we're experiencing as we continue his mission to spread the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do once again what you have done before to take ordinary, fallible people, to fill us and to transform us into bold witnesses for Jesus and to add daily to our number those who are being saved. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.